if under the age of 10, 99% of the world has a pain point, a moment where their heart got broken, their spirit broke. Sometimes it was could be extreme, sometimes it could just be mild. It doesn't need to be like blunt force trauma. And I was like, well, what is really the point of this? Like it can't just be, oh, I've got all this trauma, I've got to forget about it, that was really terrible. Like, does it have any other meaning? And I felt that I knew that my circumstances were defining me, but I didn't think that they were meant just to say, oh, here's your medical diagnosis now. Oh, now you're bipolar because of your trauma or now you're depression because of this. I thought there was other reasons and I wanted to get to the bottom of it. All right, Janice, again, I just wanted to say thanks for, for being on the show and you have a really cool story and I'm excited for, for you to share, to dive in deeper and for the listeners to get a little piece of that. So tell me a little bit about what it is you do right now. So what I do right now is I help people heal. I wrote my own healing modality after the last 25, 30 years. I grew up on the streets like many kids. My dad was a, was an addict. I grew up with just my mom and was pretty much running around uh, in these kind of dual worlds. And even then I was put into addiction programs and Al-Anon programs. And when I went to write my degree in psychology, I started to write my thesis and I really found myself like dissecting like, okay, this theory only works here, but what about women? This theory doesn't work here. What about a hungry? And so I started to write that theory, although I've been in the tech industry the last 14 years as a front facing tech founder, but behind the scenes, I was always writing this theory. And so now last year I was running a music crypto NFT company. Um, moonlit that company and decided it was time to bring my healing modality into the world. So I launched a school and I had healers across Canada and the United States. And now we are launching a, real, a relationship program. So what I wanted to find out, you talk a lot about pain data and like healing from that. What, what does that mean? And how did you discover that? Well, I think that I was most fascinated because I grew up in tough experiences. Like what was the point of all of these things that I witnessed and had to deal with, right? I think most of the time we're like, well, we experience trauma or pain points as kids. Oftentimes under the age of 10, 99% of the world has a pain point, a moment where their heart got broken, their spirit broke. Sometimes it was could be extreme. Sometimes it could just be mild. It doesn't need to be like blunt force trauma could be cultural trauma, could be community trauma. And I was like, well, what is really the point of this? Like, it can't just be, oh, I've got all this trauma. I've got to forget about it. That was really terrible. Like, does it have any other meaning? And I felt that I knew that my circumstances were defining me, but I didn't think that they were meant just to say, oh, here's your medical diagnosis now. Oh, now you're bipolar because of your trauma or now your depression because of this. I thought there was other reasons and I wanted to get to the bottom of it. So I studied emotional pain points before your 10th birthday, really the last 25 years, and spent the last 10 years reading human pain data. And so it's been fascinating to, so your human pain data can tell you what kind of relationships you're going to have, how you're gonna show up in the world, what identity you lean into, it will also tell you your calling. It will tell you your purpose. It'll tell you probably the name of your company, your book, your movie. It tells you absolutely everything that you need to know about yourself and how you show up. 
is this like a, a survey or a set of questions? No. How, so what, what is it? So, okay. So I, so there's a, there's different point, points to this. So when I wrote the theory of AHAVA, I took 12 different academic studies and 30 different therapeutic processes. And then I looked at math. I looked at uh, physics. I said, well, if each data point predicts a pattern of behavior, and if you dropped a tennis ball out of a box, it would bounce and it would hit on data points. But do you look at all of the points or do you just look at the initial one that says, oh, well, let's set this all in motion. And so I started to ask a series of questions, but I use whiteboards and I take the whiteboards to see if we can see the patterns, but more importantly, so the person can see their patterns. And if they can see their patterns in math, then I would say, well, this data point potentially is relevant. Then I really wrapped it and expanded the idea of codependent theory into my own theory. And I thought, well, what is a factor of three really telling us? If we look at the spiritual side of our life, the Trinity exists in every religion. Um, it exists in all aspects of spirituality, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the factor of three. And at the heart of it, I fell in love with the Detroit Tigers baseball team. <laughs> and I thought, well, this is the greatest goddamn game in the world. What if I saw human pain data like the greatest baseball game that was ever played? And could I see the math in everyone's human data? So if I found something that happened consecutively three times, I would know I'd hit a home run. If I saw it consecutively for three times in its opposite form, it was a strikeout. And I thought, well, if our life exists in thirds, and we know that in order to be a great baseball player, you really should hit over 300. And we know that we have nine innings in a game, three, three, and three. And if you divide it all up, the entire game is built on a factor of three. And I thought, hmm, well, this is fascinating. So what if a human's life is a baseball game in a factor of three? Is that, does that have to do with why you do the prior to 10 years old? Is that part of that? Okay. Yeah. Because you have to know which game it's, you're playing. So, and who are all the players? So, okay. So this is going to be very creative and artistic, but I was totally in love with Alan Trammell. I still think he's a great baseball player, but I'm really loving the Blue Jays right now. And, um, and I thought the Expos were amazing and like loved the game of baseball. And I was like, okay, so who's the Alan Trammell in this? the savior my wife I'm like okay everyone has the Alan Trammell or you have that coach that like Sparky Anderson I was like okay so who are the main players in my game of baseball in my first 10 years of life that I believe took love and belonging from me made my life amazing made my life shitty my siblings are part of my initial baseball team and that little bugger oh that one was really chaotic but man you really need a pinch hitter go for that one. I thought that everything was that, but you had to see who the main players were because after your 10th birthday, you would just repeat the same game. Like 10 to 20, you may have different sub people out, but you're still going to play the same game as how you see this game should be played. And you're going to repeat those patterns repeatedly until they don't work. And then you're like, fuck, I've been hitting right-handed, but really I'm a lefty. But what allows someone to know that, to realize that they're actually left-handed? Um, I teach them and they go through the 12 steps of Ahava. And then you need to know the theory. So this is the other thing about my love of baseball, the fundamentals. 
you think about healing and you go see a therapist, do they teach you cognitive behavioral therapy? Like, do they say, here's the textbook. This is what I'm going to be working from the instrument. You should go learn the playbook and then we can have a conversation. No, that person withholds that knowledge from you. So you never get the playbook. Well, you can't be a baseball player if you don't know the fundamentals. You can't be a great golfer, which I happen to love that game too. You can't do any of this without the greatest games alive. And I've worked in pro sports for a decade, like football. You're never going to be good at offense unless you know somebody's defense. Like if you think about it, the, the reference of baseball and every other sport should be applied to healing. The difference is, is this most healers don't give you the playbook and say, let's play from this playbook so that when you leave and are done with me, because you're going to be, I'm, I'm only going to be a coach that's going to be good for like six months and then you're going to need someone else. Hmm. I don't give you the playbook and then you run away with the playbook. So then this is how people become codependent because then you believe that someone's holding the power over whether you can or cannot win. And as long as you are in that psychology of emotional pain, which is a system, you won't heal. And so I fell in love with baseball at eight years old when I saw it on WDIV Detroit. And they piped it into the middle of Canada to a province called Saskatchewan. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this is the greatest game I've ever seen in my life. And I didn't grow up in church or faith. I didn't have any of that. I thought someone has made this game that like clearly gets life. And I thought, well, if this worked here, could it not work in every other place? And so when I was doing my psychology degree and studying therapeutic processes, I could see that this factor of three existed in lots of different ways. And, you know, we always say bad things happen in three, but so do good things. And so then I essentially thought that every human being is like a double A battery. And if you think of, well, if you look at a double A battery, it has a negative and a positive. But if you don't put it in the right way and slot it into the radio, it doesn't play. But if you only had one end that was in, it still won't play. Both ends have to exist to have a common charge to make something sing. So if you think about human beings, we only think about all the bad shit that happened to us. But what about the other end of the battery? And if you attached energy to something, it must contain in the same data point its opposite end. I don't. This is deep, deeper than that. Yes. So, but how did you can make this connection? It sounds like you did it. I don't know. And like, so <laughs> yes. you realize there was a connection to baseball and life, and then mm -hmm. you already wanted to study psychology when you went to school. Yeah. Or something between there that that happened. Yeah, yeah. So I, well, my dad was an addict, and so when I wasn't, my mom worked three jobs. And so I was really raised by families all over the world. And then when I would go over to my dad's house, it was just everyone from the streets, you know, it's just people all struggling, all having human struggle. So when I was really young, I went into Alateen, which was for Al-Anon, children of alcoholics. Um, but then once I got to high school, I was a bit of a party maniac. And so then they were like, well, we better put her in addiction programs because she's going to be an addict. And so I was told I'd have an 85% chance of becoming an addict once I grew up. And this is in the 80s. Wow. And I thought, well, that's a terrible life sentence. Um, and I didn't believe it. And because I didn't believe it, I wanted to disprove it. And so I started to collect the theory. And so it started with baseball, throwing some Oprah and some Carmen Harlan and watching the news and WDIV. Then it grew into all of the field of psychology. And while I was studying psychology, I started to study philosophy and religious studies. And I started to see what they all had in common. 
And then when I was doing my degree, my professor said, you know, Janice, you're really a theorist. Like you should go write your own theory. And I was pretty convinced that academics were poor. And so I was like, no, I've been poor my whole life. I'm going to go make money. And so I went into pharmaceuticals and then I started studying addiction in my mind, not what my job was, but in my mind, working in the pharmaceutical industry and saying, this is just different drug pushers. Like this is just different addicts. This is just a different, this is just legal, but you're saying the same things and doing the same things from the people that I was surrounded by that were living on the streets. So I was like, hold on, here's a common system. And then that really led into the tech industry in 2009, where I saw the emergence of technology. And it's like, oh, great. Now we're going to carry heroin, yet none of us still have a needle and we don't even know we're getting injected. And that was the completion of the theory after moving to Silicon Valley and being in the Valley and seeing what systems they were using to control human behavior. And then I knew we were, for lack of a better term, fucked that if we, because we wouldn't notice because we're not, we don't have a needle in our arm mm. and that it would change our psychology and that it would prey upon going back to the original 10 years of life. When someone experiences emotional pain, the, there's a couple things that break and it creates a system of emotional pain. The first thing that happens when you have emotional pain as a child before your 10th birthday, which 99.9% .9 of the world does, is the first thing is it does is it creates the inability for you to delay gratification. Like you don't want to be uncomfortable. And you have this illusion that you can never, that you're going to control pain. Whatever happened to you, you never want to happen again. So you start to change yourself and try to control your situation so that you never have to feel that way again. And that becomes your learned codependent ways. The other thing that happens is the sense of control is all false. You believe that you're in control of this because you never want to feel this way again. So you change who you are in that given situation. And your first addiction is human addiction. It's where you first learn to manipulate humans. And children learn it before they even have language. Right. Oh, mom's never getting out of bed. Dad's never at home. I guess I'll clean up the house when I'm three years old now. So you start to change. And then your mom's like, thank you for doing that. Oh, she notices me. Oh, she must love me. And so then we start to change. And then we live in our codependent triangulation for pretty much all of our lives until we decide that the drug no longer works. James, I have like 10 questions now. Um, it's good. <laughs> how do we, So because I have, young kids now you're like scared like how do I, is can we create an environment that minimizes the risk of those things or is yes. there, there strategies as as parent and as you know uh, co-parents in a relationship that can be represent that better yes so first parents all parents need to do their own emotional pain work even if they have kids mm -hmm. and they need to commit to that so most people will marry their pain in their first instance so mo most people marry pain. They, they think they're marrying the love of their life, but they're actually marrying pain um, in most cases, um, unless you both have done your work to heal and then you meet. But if you That's met, right. yeah, yeah. So people first marry their pain, which means each of you were attracted to each other from your codependent triangle already. You fulfilled a portion of the triangle that used to be held by a sibling or a parent. 
So the person comes in, it's like, oh, you're going to save me from my life because you're not my dad. And he was a bastard. He was never around, but you're amazing. And you're the guy and you're the, and you grew up saving people because of your situation. So you are what we would call the capital M, not you specifically, but a person would be the capital M. And so they get addicted to that. You get addicted to the saving and that person gets addicted to being saved. So your children are left in the scenario of, okay, well, they're already fixed, especially your firstborn. They have no, no choice but to be born into the triangle that you've already set for them before they've even taken their first breath. So they will observe you in a way and they will observe mom in a way. And then the child will go, well, there's only one part of this triangle that's left for me. And so they will assume the position. And then the second child born will observe that this triangle is already completed. Well, there's no room for me. And the oldest one gets everything and they're the first born <laughs> on and on and on. And then that child starts the storytelling. I don't belong in this family. I don't look like them. I don't, I don't act like my older sibling. I'm not part of this. It's storytelling in the psychology because codependent triangulation is buried in the subconscious. It's it's just how you change yourself to get love and belonging because everyone has a pain point. Now, the third child born, if there is a third, those three will triangulate with each other, the three siblings. So the oldest one had no choice. The second one hates this one. So they'll do opposite. Even if they want to be more like their sibling, they'll reject it anyway because it's pain. The third one's going, what are you all fighting about? I'm just the third one born. Like, What's going on here? This is all like crazy town in the house like what's happening so what you have is just what we call toxic triangulation but all of it stems from emotional pain and so unless parents commit to not being codependents at all and commit to the healing process of not being a codependent and then they can change their children forever their children can ultimately no longer assume the position the children can then heal so the parents go through that process of healing. Do they eliminate then that codependent triangulation? Yes. Okay. Yes. And then depending on the age of the children, the children are free to just be exactly who they are without looking on everyone else's lane. Like who's getting love, who's not? Who's getting this, who's not? Like, so the, the thing about that most people don't understand is people don't understand what really codependency is. Right. They think it's people placing and a response to someone who's an addict. But actually codependency, what we define it as at AHA, is codependency is human addiction. It's the first time that you learn to change yourselves, to manipulate what's going on on the outside of you, to change because of pain, because you believe that love and belonging was kept from you. And as long as you believe that to be true about the people that are in front of you that don't know any better because they were born, as long as you stay in a blame and shame vortex, you will always just replace your cast of characters, your baseball team, as you age. So does your baseball team. Is so, there is there only just those three positions in that? Tri is, are there always usually always? It's kind of the law of the three attraction. Yeah. People will have a dominant role between victim, martyr, or perpetrator within your codependent triangle. There'll be a dominant default, but everyone will play different ones depending on what they're trying to get but they will have a dominant one. So the, and I always say, you know, they have a dominant one when how do they respond to a situation in chaos? So you'll see that they'll spring into action. So if you spring into action when there's emotional chaos, 
the victim would be like, fuck, here we go again. Everything always happens to me. Life sucks. It's always me. Like everything's at the bottom of the parallel. And the predator will be like, fuck, this is chaotic. Let's shake some shit up. You guys should all wake up. And the martyr's going, I got it. I'm going to solve it all. So everyone responds to it differently when there's an emotional spike. Because emotional pain lies dormant in the body unless you heal the core root. You know, the more people I talk to in, in this setting, it's, and it's been a lot of mental health professionals, they talk about that holding it in the body, that even those, those emotional feelings, those things that we kind of repress are actually can be physically manifested. Mm-hmm. So I, is it, in your experience, do most people finally just get to a point where they're physically and emotionally tired of doing the same old thing? That's what makes them seek help. And how can we start to recognize that earlier? Uh, so it doesn't great get question. to the end. Okay, well, we have baseball as a wonderful reference for our life experience. So I always say you get a whisper, a two by four, then you get a truck. So always three. Like you swing once, ah, I missed it. That's okay. It's okay. It's okay. You swing another time, boom, you get hit in the head with a baseball bat. The third blows you over in the truck. Okay. And you usually get them over a 30-year period. So you'll get your first whisper that perhaps you need to pay attention to your life between 10 and 20. So when you get the first whisper, between 20 and 30, you're probably going to get a two by four. You're probably not going to get the job you wanted. Something's going to, the rug's going to come out a little, a little bit of a two by four. Like maybe the way that I'm being isn't working for me anymore. Hmm. 30 and 40, truck, divorce, parents die, you get sick, your body doesn't move like it used to, truck. Now, if you still don't pay attention between 30 and 40, starts all over again. 40 and 50, you get another whisper, probably another truck, probably all three in that. Then it gets louder. Between 40 and 50 gets louder. You're going to get hit, whisper, two by four truck, whisper, two by four truck. You're like, God damn it. Everything keeps happening in my 40s and 50s and keeps falling down on the planet. Right? All of that happens between there. So then from that, we then choose to ignore it or we get completely crushed. And then by the time you decide, okay, God, I'm 50 to 60, maybe it's too late. But if you trace the roots of emotional pain, you can trace it back that the thorn entered your spirit between your birth and 10th birthday, the thorn. And it entered in Maslow's hierarchy of needs right between food and lodging, which is the bottom layer of Maslow, and love and belonging. The thorn always enters between zero to 10. That's when it first enters. And the root of that thorn stays, but the driving motivation is you are always really seeking love and belonging. You want to be loved. And so you break out the system. I think the one thing that many people don't necessarily understand because mental health often deals in the cognitive, we deal in the emotional. And I say emotional pain is a system. And and I think that most people don't understand what that means when you say emotional pain is a system. It created a factor of three. And so the moment you had emotional pain, three simultaneous systems turned on. And when those systems turned on, they control your life. 
until you decide that it no longer serves you and you're ready to surrender it and suspend it. But most people don't see emotional pain from system as a system because they probably didn't love baseball or pay attention to Alan Trammell or any yeah. of the beautiful Detroit, Detroit Tigers of the 80s or didn't really see how this system shows up in examples in all things from literature to how you make a movie in the hero's journey to looking at philosophy and what we know about philosophy and how logic forms to the roots of psychology. So I studied the 12 academic theories and if I could find a point that all three of them would agree, checkbox, 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 I'd hit a home run. I'm like, okay, you go in the keep column. If I couldn't find something in religion that didn't psychology didn't say, I was like, okay, can we believe it? So then I would look at other religions. Okay, so does Judaism, Muslim, and Christianity, what did they say is the same thing? And so then I would extract points from there. And I was always applying it back to what does this tell us about our earliest pain? And so I was looking for that. And it took 30 years to find all of the pieces of the puzzle that I could. Um, and I haven't been disproven yet in like the full magnitude of the theory. There's parts of the theory that other people have invented prior to me that I thought, yeah, that's a home run. That should be in the box of yes. And then there was other parts where I was like, this doesn't actually inform the healing journey further and is unnecessary at this point. Um, so I wanted to look at the core root of when the thorn went in the body, what happened? Because that was the initial storm. So it all, it all seems so logical and I've never heard it put this way. I think it's the baseball that's helping me. Uh, so, but the question is, my question is, so if we go to that first inning, we go to that thorn, right? Like if I think about my own childhood, it didn't seem bad. I don't remember one traumatic experience that changed everything. How do we identify then what it, where that is that's hidden in there if, if it's not? Great question. So that was really the big part of my own invention because it took that took the most um, of my own secret sauce. And so I call it the golden triangle. So baseball diamond. You're right. Okay, so... <laughs> <laughs> it's like I, I I kid you not when I saw the baseball diamond I'm like it's really just two triangles on top of each other right? right and so if this is good and this is evil right like what are the two triangles doing at all times and if you kind of think about the bottom part of the triangle the victim martyr perpetrator right this is your codependency and then on the top, I was like, well, you've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit on the top, or you've got one, two, three, home free. So I was like, okay, if I am the quote-unquote Son, the person in front of us, made in God's likeness, well, what would be the Father, and then what would be the Holy Spirit? And then I thought, well, who do we triangulate with here on the bottom? Well, if I flip this up to the top, do I need to look at where my mom was left behind and where my dad was left behind? And when did they leave themselves behind? Because we know generational trauma matters because whoever you think is your parent isn't who they are unless they've done the healing work. So what you got was the false version. What you need to know is what's the other end of their battery. You know how they were growing up and you saw them from a pain point of view. You didn't necessarily see them as a little kid who loved baseball. 
because that's not who showed up for you. Who showed up for you was the codependent, this side of it. But we need to know this side of it. And it's a factor of a third, a third, a third, and a third, three innings, three innings, nine innings of baseball. So this was my dad's inning, and this was my mom's inning, and this was my inning. And if I put them all together, I have a full baseball game. So I needed to know what were they like before their 10th birthday. So I'll give you an example in real life. My pain points. I was born in 1975. I'm not ashamed to say it. Mine was 1983 was my first. Everything in my life changed. Everything in my life changed. I know it from that moment in 1983. I was eight years old. I know for my dad, he was the oldest born of four. He was also born in 1943. And I said, well, when was the next person born directly below him? Two. He was two. So I said, his family order changed. He went from being the oldest and only to now, who's this person? Like, I'm getting all the love and belonging, and now that you're, you're just showing up in my life? What are you doing showing up in my life? So I start to dig around there, and I'll just use this as an example. My dad's was actually 1945. So then I'm like, my mom was born in 1944. When was her pain point? And I call this all the big P, the big P. I was like, okay, I need to know my big P and I need to know their big P's because they hold data for me. Because I didn't get their true selves. I need to know the other end of their battery. I got their false selves. I got their, I got an addicted dad, not a dad who loved machines and liked to take mechanics apart and loved Tonka trucks. Mm -hmm. That's not the guy I got. I got the guy that was an addict. So I needed to know who he really was so I could find out what he had to give me for my purpose and my gift. And so I created something in the math called the golden triangle. And the golden triangle will tell us all of the connective tissue, the points, the points in history, the music, the food, the aesthetic of your company, the name of it. Um, you find out everything you need with three consecutive dates of three different time periods of three different types of baseball games. Those dates tell you like, because that was my next question is when you talk about from that, you know, beginning point, you can tell what someone's calling is what these all things mm -hmm. are like. Is it from those dates or is it from the, the thing that those data points tell you? Combination of all things. Okay. So you will find out surprisingly in the golden triangle you'll find out like even what food you should be eating and like where your root stories from and where were your parents from where were they born did they leave did they immigrate because the roots of that country will be really important for how you see yourself now but more importantly how you can also heal so they contain ingredients and parts of the recipe that are really really important for you today if you were living and breathing today wanting to know who you really are what you love who you should love, what you are attracted to in your true self, not your false self. Um, all of the data is contained in a third, a third, and a third. So the other two factors is who you believe withheld love and belonging the most from you. Who do you believe in your storytelling disrupted your existence? Now, you may have to understand why your dad showed up the way that he did, who disrupted his existence. And this is how generational trauma works in the positive. I got to discover that when my dad died, which he just passed away, I had extraordinary love for him. 
extraordinary love for him. He did terrible things in my young childhood. But had he not paid the price of that, I probably wouldn't have figured this formula out. Mm. And had he not paid the price and been the example for what I needed to figure out, I wouldn't have been able to figure it out. And I couldn't extract the gift. And the thing that my dad did better than anyone as I come to understand him, I never knew this man, is he took engines apart and he put things together and made things new. What do I do? I take theories apart and I put things together and I make them new. My mother loved music and thought that everything came down to a theory that you couldn't play the piano unless you couldn't knew the theory of the instrument, that you needed to read the music. And I thought, do human beings know the instrument that they're playing? Do they have a theory book to say that you are a human instrument? What's the playbook? And then I realized that we don't give humans a playbook to really understand how to play the game of their own life. We think we're right-handed, but we're really left. We think we're this way, but we're really that. But we spend our whole life trying to avoid pain and to control pain that we miss the picture. We miss the ball game. And so creating the golden triangle and the math around it took me 12 years. And I have read data after data of human data on a whiteboard, story after story after story after story after story to see if it was consistent, to see if the math revealed the truth. Why is the whiteboard so effective for you? It's, a, it's actually a therapeutic technique. It separates the person from the conversation. And I felt it was most effective, oddly enough, again, when I started to work with Indigenous and First Nation women, and I'm a white woman, and they're looking at me and they're like, mm, really, you're going to write that on a new mm. I knew that they thought I was judging it. And I'd ask them questions, and they wouldn't tell me the truth because there's a judgment because of racism and, and, a, and a clear disdain for anyone that's white. And so when I went over to the southern side of the border, to the U.S. side of it, I started to meet with women, Black women specifically, a lot of them. And same thing. And I thought, how do we how do we remove the therapist or the questioning from this equation so they can focus on a board and become Inspector Gadget, like Sherlock Holmes? I'm going to date myself with Inspector Gadget, but you know, like, how do they look at this and say, oh, oh, there's my pad. Oh, I see my number. Mm, now you're seeing your life differently. In that in that moment, you're starting to look at this story that you've been telling yourself. My dad's this, my mom's this, my life is this, I'm this. We're reframing it from that instant. And you're starting to look for the gift. Because now you're starting to look at your information and going, hold on, okay, is that baseball? Oh, yeah, the three, it showed up three times. That's it. I said, oh, so you really like to draw. No, that's not practical. I haven't drawn since I was a kid. But you just said it three times. Like you just said, I love to draw. Oh, I love to draw. You know, I really love to draw. And then I say, do you draw? No, I'm an accountant. Well, why the fuck don't you draw? You just told me three times you love to draw. And so I would listen and people would say things repeatedly, often three times. Mm -hmm. Then I knew I had hit a home run. They'd hit a home run. I'm like, you hit a home run. 
and people will do that because the true self is always wanting to come out we've just put a head on our body and said don't come out and yet the spirit always wants to come out to play do you, where do you think that why do you think it is that we all have a calling why isn't it just you know i find what i'm good at or i find things that i like why why do you believe there truly is a calling and a purpose for each of us because there's no other earthly reason for pain what do you mean when you as a parent have children unless you are truly a sociopath which is a very rare condition psychologically you have no desire to be mean to this baby or change this baby or hurt this baby or change their life, but yet we do. Why do we? And if you keep tracing it back, you realize that the only reason for human pain is to be the toughest coach we ever had to play a game. And the only reason why we would ever have emotional pain for you to experience it intimately yourself is if you were meant to change it. The only reason why you should have emotional pain is to remind you of what you really wanted to be before the rest of the world told you what you were. The only reason why you should have emotional pain and it should live in your body and stay there is because it's the only thing you're really gonna pay attention to at the end of the day. And what better way to get your attention than to have something to poke you from the inside? Hey, remember this? Hey, remember this? Now, in our culture, we think it's to torture ourselves or we think medically it's to diagnose us. In some cases it is. But then there's a whole other swath of reasons. If you think about a baseball game back at it, mm -hmm. you ever hit the ball in the exact same time at the exact same place in the exact same way in the exact same filter in the exact same line of gra grass every single time? Does it go exactly to the same thing? No. And if you were to measure it and look at it, it'd be off by a hair, right? Like just a hairline fraction of a difference. Even if you look at a pitcher, you're like, you've just pitched that ball a hundred times. Shouldn't be just pitching in the exact same place, the exact same time, the exact same. No, no, no. Because life isn't really like that. So what do you do with all those fractions of data in between and the hairline fractures of something that's off that? But what is the only thing that gets you back to your true self? What would be the point of our lives? We would never have emotional pain if we weren't supposed to transform it and do something greater with our lives. There would be no point. What if it was like, I'm just going to play devil's advocate here. Yeah. What if, what if that pain was like some sort of evolutionary way to keep us to conform, to help society, you know, be more cohesive? Why is it so individualized? Because we're each on an individual journey. And so if you wanted it to be cohesive, we wouldn't have pain because then there would be no difference between us. Then we wouldn't have pain because we'd all just be blank slates living from our basic drives, living in a utopian society, which Aldous Huxley certainly made a good reason why we should never want a utopian society after Brave New World. You know, every individual here is having an experience to see. Now, there's different philosophies. In, in the Judaism, there's a philosophy that you inherit a soul and you better not leave it dumber than what you got it. So you should like use it improve the soul so when the soul goes on to the next person it's it's ahead of the game 
-hmm. it's done something. There's some things in Akashic records that say you come hardwired with a problem already in the soul for you to build upon. There is in the Christian faith that we're here to serve God and to live in the likeness of God. If you look at philosophy, you look at Carl Jung and the psychology, they say, well, actually, if you look at the psychology of human beings, and Carl Jung notices towards the end of his life that we all have this unknowing, call it a soul, call it God, call it whatever you want. But yet humans are born with that. Now, if we were going to have this cohesive, we should all live in this society, we would have been probably animals. Because animals are very predictive in their nature. They're, they follow their basic drives. This is how they live. They live cohesively together. It's only humans that fuck up animals, you know, really. Because animals, animals really know how to live. Like, there's no problem. You know, that's why they always say a tree doesn't wish to be a human. A tree is a tree. A lion's a lion. A dog's a dog. But humans that are spiritual, that are sent with a soul... There would be no other earthly reason for, for emotional pain if you weren't here to transform it, to learn from it, to bring color to it, to bring creativity to it, to expand on the philosophy of it, to give the gift to someone else that may be in pain. Um, life is meant to be joyful. Um, but first, in order for us to experience joy, we must experience pain. And you can't have joy without pain, and you can't have pain without joy. They are a double battery. Yeah. I, I like that there's this connection between these religious principles, secular scientific study, and then the sports analogies. Why, why this interconnectedness? How do, how do, how do you okay. put these together? Thank you for asking me that. No one asks me that. Because no offense to a patriarchy society, but a patriarchy society has built under this notion that something is right and something is wrong. Mm -hmm. And it is often built from the logic, mm -hmm. the, the semantic debate. In my journey of being a kid on the streets, I would go from one house to another house. I go from people from all over the world fed me. I had this extraordinary tapestry of a quilt of a human experience. And the thing that I felt that was most fascinating about it, I was like, we need to find a place where we can all agree. And so I felt that how could I create a theory that could eliminate semantic debate? Because if I just taught it from a religious perspective, you would say, well, I'm not a Christian. I'm a Muslim. Well, now I don't like you. Well, then if I taught it from a philosophy perspective, they're like, there's no God in philosophy. If I talked it from a psychology perspective, half of the psychologists amongst each other don't even agree. A behavior psychologist doesn't agree necessarily with a humanistic psychologist, and a humanistic doesn't necessarily like psychoanalysis. So they spend all their time fighting with each other. And no offense, again, a patriarch society is meant to say, I'm the best and the only. I thought, well, what if I could find them all together and put them all in the same damn pot? What if I could take a guy that does it from Saskatchewan, which is where I'm from, who loves the Rough Riders? Could I teach him about emotional pain from the Saskatchewan Rough Rider CFL perspective? And if I could take another person who devoutly believed in God, could I show them that we don't need to follow every rule of the Bible to still have something in common with our Muslim friends or Judaist friends or the psychologists or for the atheists, for that matter, which is still a decision? I thought, what is the one thing? that most humans can agree with. And most humans can agree we have a soul. And if they don't, I don't work with them because I think that they're maybe sociopathic and I'm not so sure I want to enter that territory. You know, if you really don't believe you have a soul, then 
going to eliminate a big part of the consciousness for you to feel empathy mm -hmm. and for you to feel feel because we also know where empathy lives in our human experience and so i wanted to have the most comprehensive that you could enter the world of healing from alan trammell and the detroit tigers baseball to philosophy and aristotle to Perhaps you believe in Abraham Maslow, or maybe you believe in Judaism or Christianity and philosophy, or maybe it's new age self-help, or maybe you're a Buddhist. It, for me, they were all in many cases saying the same thing um, and just saying it differently. Well, that's really uh, fascinating. And I think that's why it's hard, you know, maybe because I'm trying to use my logical brain so much that it's like, well, it should just be a linear path and you're bringing it in from the, the triangle, right? So mm -hmm. it's it's so creative and so all-encompassing. It's like, it, it's very interesting. Thank you. Thank you. I tried to make it interesting. Uh, and I think one of the other things too is that if you take human conditioning, behavior conditioning, and I will say this, is that, and I think particularly what's so hard for, for men today mm -hmm. And I would say what often is even harder for men to heal in some cases than say women and those in between is that culturally you've been conditioned that using your head and the ability to think is a superpower. Mm -hmm. You know, you solve problems of the head, you build rockets, you, you, you build rockets that are shaped like giant penises, mind you, but still you build rockets, right? Oh. <laughs> whatever works. Yeah. So, but you it, it's reinforced a part of the identity that how you think is how you are successful in life and so then we're seeing that war of the logic where we know that the logic in the brain even aristotle plato socrates the original philosophers and you know aristotle first designed the logic said you know this reasoning will only work in certain circumstances you need to be aware of its deficiencies now, the thing that was interesting in philosophy is that they didn't really talk about what happens when you have emotional pain. How does emotional pain impact the way you think? Mm -hmm. And that actually does change. And the more you use your logic, the more you separate yourself from your pain. And so the hard part about it is the more you try to solve it here, the more you will suffocate yourself. So now conversely, for women, we are taught almost immediately culturally that we have women's intuition. We're encouraged to use it or our babies would die. So if we don't feel this and carry this, we're taught to feel. So we move more into our feeling bodies and less out of our logic. And, but in both cases, we have an imbalance. We end up as a society out of balance. Too much logic, not enough feeling. Too much feeling, not enough logic. And so if you think about the world again, like a double A battery, if these two energies are not balanced, they are imbalanced. Now that's in a steady state, assuming that humans don't have emotional pain. Now, when you put emotional pain into 99.9% .9 of the world wrapped in codependent triangulation, and we have a fucking shit show of an epidemic. And then you throw us in the middle of technology, right. which was built on Pavlov's invention. 
And so now you have behavior conditioning wrapped in codependency with emotional pain, where most of us want to love and belong. And you give us social spaces wrapped in the greatest Pavlovian experiment of our times. And that's when I was living in Silicon Valley in technology. I was like, oh, great. <laughs> now you're even going to make it look like a bell on the phone. Like, should I salivate? Like, like, <laughs> and I was putting up my hand. That's funny. And everyone was like, who, who brought their mom, you know, to the, to the frat party of the geeks and beers in the middle of Silicon Valley on Sand Hill Road. And I was like, hold on, kids can't have this yet because their social emotional learning isn't developed and they're not emotionally done till they're 25. And so all you're going to do is fuck them up. And now you're going to rewire their brains and change this, this entire sphere of influence Never mind the Gen X's and the Gen Z's and the boomers that are still all living in emotional pain. And you're going to put all of us into the same bucket from every single country in the world. And you're going to wrap it around the greatest experiment of our time, which was Pavlov and behavior conditioning. And B.F. Skinner realized that they could change the nature of a dog. The dog didn't eat unless the bell rang. And so he'd gnaw off his arm now, you know, so when you started to go back to your original question about humans and, mammal, and mammals and, and animals, what is, makes us human is our ability to feel. And yes, dogs feel as well. I don't want to insult the fur baby mamas, but, but really is empathy. So out of the emergence of behavior psychology came humanistic. It came after behavior conditioning as a result of what happened in, in B.F. Skinner, the father of behavior psychology. Humanistic had to come in because they're like, oh man, in the wrong hands of this, this is torture. In the wrong hands, this is chaos. In the wrong hands, you could condition a human. The prison experiments, the Stanford, you could change Stanford teaches a, a class to tech founders on how to teach the systems of behavior conditioning. And those end up in Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and, and any place where we quote unquote socialize. And so the danger of that is now 4.5 billion people a day spend one to two hours a day in social spaces, but they're literally spending it inside of a Pavlov social experiment and look at our social experiment how do we get out well most people have to detox completely out of social media like it's a drug yeah. and so in, unless we we put it in the same reference as that but we don't because we don't have a needle in our arm so but it has the same impact it still robs you of your sense of self it's still used as a numbing and stuffing device yeah. so you don't have to feel so you don't have to look at your own life and decide who you want to be. We've given all of our power to Mark Zuckerberg, terrible hands for that, you know, to say, hey, decide if my company's successful. Can I get in the algorithm? How much do I have to pay you? Oh, but I'm not in the algorithm. But when I post this, but what about if I post 20 times a day? Well, I, well, I, well, I know I'm going to spend all my time here navigating social so that I could break an algorithm over someone who decides what gets seen and what doesn't versus. So there's, you know, Homer who wrote the very first novel 
warned of this time. And the Toltecs in the Mayan warned of this time. Pavlov and B.F. Skinner in psychology warned of this time. Philosophy, Nietzsche said, if you put a whole bunch of people all commuting together, chaos and insanity will rule. We've, it's been warned in 2000, 3000s of years of history of literature. Um, and yet now we carry it in our pocket. And sure. so what's, what's interesting about that, again, is the assumption that people are coming to this rational and reasonable. In a rational and a reasonable state, maybe you'd be aware that you're being behavior conditioned. But going back to the original thesis of AHA is that 99.9% .9 of people have emotional pain. And if you have emotional pain that's built in love and belonging, and that's where the thorn is, why don't you give us an entire social place where I can join groups? <laughs> why not? Oh, I know. Let's go live on Facebook so I could show all the high school boys that didn't want to date me that I'm super hot now. And now I'm going to troll all of them because they didn't want me then, but oh, they're going to want me now. Yeah. And let's post pictures of our lives in perpetuity of our children and saying, look at me, 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 which is the psychology of an eight-year-old or a three-year-old. Since you have kids, what's the first thing you do when you come home? Dad, look what I made today. Mom, look at what I did. And they whip open their backpack and they're like, look at my picture, look at my picture, look at my picture. If you actually look at it, the psychology is very similar. This was um, amazing. So thank you. How does, how, is there, are there resources? How do we follow you? How do we learn more about what you have going on? Yes. So you can go to ahahealing.com for sure. You can find me there. If you have me, if you come onto my podcast at the very end of the podcast, I will do your whiteboard. So you can spend an hour, an hour on a whiteboard with us. We'll, we'll set you free. The full program of Ahava is I recreated the 12 steps in response to the 12 steps I learned as a kid. I was in AA, I was in addiction programs, and I thought that they were garbage and I wanted to change them. I thought that only two of the three steps would, of the 12 steps would be effective. So then you can follow the 12 steps. It's built into three phases. And it's a six-month program where people can actually heal and move out of their codependent triangulation. And they can attract love. I always say, don't get a divorce until you're done this program. Um, you'll actually find you really like each other. I don't recommend divorce at the beginning. I recommend that two couples heal. Um, if you're looking to change careers, do this first. If you're looking to go to college, do this first so that you know what you truly, who you truly are, not who you are in response to your emotional pain. Yes, I can't thank you enough. This has been awesome. And Good. And thank you for allowing me the grace to tell you all my baseball analogies. Of course. Because that helped I, me. Yes. Okay. You are not going to get out of your head of the one, two, three. Oh, you're going to, you're going to see the triangulation of the baseball diamond everywhere. Yeah. Right. And the, just the rule of thirds just makes it, it makes it, I never thought about it in the baseball game because it's nine innings, but it's still broken up into third. So like, it just makes right? sense. And it's like one, two, three, one, two, three, one, yeah. like it's three strikes, three. Yeah. I mean, it's all there. If they bat over 300, do you not know they're doing well? I, right. It's plain as day. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. This was really, really fun. Will you send us a copy whenever you have it already? Of course. Of course. Okay.